preacher was once asked to uh, by a local funeral director to hold a graveside service for someone who had no family or no friends. So the preacher decided that I'll do it, and uh, he, with good intentions, left early enough to get to the graveside so he could perform the, the, the graveside service. But as it would be, he got lost, and he got horribly lost. And eventually, in half an hour later, he arrived at the graveside. He saw the backhoe sitting there with its crew off to the side eating lunch, but he didn't see a hearse anywhere around. Didn't see the funeral director. It was nowhere in sight. And as the workmen were off to the side eating their lunch, he thought, oh, now what? So he was diligent, faithful. He got out of his car. He walked up to the hole. It was evident that they had the vault lid had already been placed upon the, the grave. And he went about preaching an impassioned sermon, sending the person off to the great beyond. And because he was so late, the longer and longer it went and more impassioned that it got as he read and preached his sermon. The crew workers were sitting off to the side watching him. And as he was returning to his car, he overheard one of the workmen say, I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years and I ain't never seen anything like that before. We are embarking today on a grand adventure. We're going to study the book of the Revelation together in the coming weeks, and I do not know how long it's going to last. I don't know. We will stop for things like Mother's Day, Father's Day, important events and things like that, but I don't know. I cannot tell you how long this is going to last. It's going to be a lengthy study on the book of the Revelation, and I would like to ask you to encourage you to invite a friend this seems to be something that people are interested in, and I'm not doing it for that reason. It's, it's a book written to the church, and the church needs to hear what this book has to say. But because people are interested in the end times, you may want to invite a friend to get them in on the bottom floor. We're only going to start today. Get in on the bottom floor. And when we finish this whole study up, however many weeks it takes us to do it, we finish this whole study up, I want you to be able to say this. I ain't ever seen anything like that before. My desire is that God would so speak to us through this book that we will be so encouraged as a, church, as a church and so strengthened in our faith as believers that we will be obedient to what God wants us to do. If you have your Bible, open up to the Revelation. Now be careful when you're talking to people. It is not revelations, plural, but it is a revelation, or in this case, the revelation. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in front of you, most likely, and it's on page 1,028. 1,028. When this book was written, we are looking at about 65 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. During the reign of Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, he was extremely wicked and hated Christians with a passion. He would burn Christians in his garden as torches to light up the festivities of the evening. He hated Christians so badly. Persecution had already started under Nero, and it expanded even further on under Domitian, the emperor from 81 until 96. The apostle John, of the 12 apostles, you know Judas forsook the Lord, and another one was elected in his place. But of the twelve then, 
John was the only one that was alive. The other 11 had been martyred for their faith. They had been gone to other parts of the world. And in the other parts of the world, as they preached Jesus Christ, they were martyred for their faith. So most likely when this book was written, John the Apostle was the last living apostle of Jesus Christ in the most technical, narrowest sense of the word apostle. He had been with Jesus. He had saw Jesus' resurrection. He had saw the ascension into heaven. As a matter of fact, John was the only male disciple that was at the foot of the cross. He now is all alone. Persecution has grown where Christians are being persecuted left and right for their faith, thrown in prison, executed, thrown, taken houses taken away. And at this point in this horrible situation, the Roman authorities were so peeved at John the Apostle because of his ministry in and around Ephesus. Now you remember Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. In his ministry in and around Ephesus, as John did what God asked him to do. The Roman authorities were so peeved at him, they said, we've got to silence this guy. Tradition tells us they tried to silence him by throwing him in a pot of boiling oil. That's what tradition tells us. And he went into the pot. The pot tipped over. He came out. He wasn't burned. He wasn't scorched. Nothing happened to him. God protected him, tradition tells us. Well, they tried to silence this guy again. They said, okay, let's send him to this small, barren island used as a penitentiary. Let's exile this John, this troublemaker, the Roman authorities said, to this island located in the Aegean Sea just southwest of Ephesus. Let's put him on this barren, isolated island so he'll stop preaching this Jesus. They did that. It was on this island that God came and gave to John this book, The Revelation. Now, you'll probably notice in your translation, it'll say The Revelation of John, or it'll say The Revelation of to John, the literal Greek title of this book is The Apocalypse of John. The Apocalypse of John. Apocalypse is simply another word for revelation, and it means an uncovering, an unveiling, a disclosure. So something that was once hidden becomes unveiled, uncovered, disclosed. And that's the idea. Now, Revelation makes a point to stretch, uh, to stress to us that although it was written in symbolic forms in many places, it is a revelation. It is an unveiling. It is an uncovering. So therefore, it is understandable. We can understand it. We can, we can draw truths out of it. It is a revelation. This book here that we're looking at, far too many times I fear we approach this book, and many people approach this book with the idea what can I get out of this book? How does this affect me? Where do I find America in, in, the, in the Revelation? What about Israel? What, who's this Antichrist? What do he has to do with me? And the, and the 144,000 witnesses? What is all this? How does this refer to me? And I think when we approach the Revelation with that mindset, we miss the whole glory of what this book is all about. For this book is not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. The book unveils Jesus Christ in his ascended glory and it reveals his final victory that only the rest of the scripture just alludes to. It isn't about us, this book. 
This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Yes, we see ourselves in there. Yes, God teaches us things through that. But first and foremost, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. The author I told you was the John the Apostle. He wrote it sometime between 94 and 96 AD at the end of the Emperor Domitian's reign. Now, many people have said they don't think it's John the Apostle that wrote this because it's so unlike the Gospel of John. It's just so different in its Greek language. John the Apostle couldn't have written this. Well, there are several second century Christian leaders who attributed this book to John the Apostle, and I will take their word on it that John the Apostle is the author of this book. And to explain why it is so different than the gospel, it's very clear. The author of all scripture is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can give to John what he wants, John to give to us. So if the writing in Greek is a bit different than the gospel of John, so be it. The Holy Spirit is the author of all words of the New Testament and Old Testament, and we can then gain from him. So let's see. Let me give you some background since I told you that this book, first and foremost, is about Jesus Christ and it's not about us. It is a revelation about him, about Jesus Christ. And I'll see if I can catch up to where I'm supposed to be at here for those of you who are filling in your blanks. I will be kind enough to try to keep up. The revelation is first and foremost, I'm sorry, I'll give it to you later. All those of you missed it, I need to move on. Perhaps maybe someone out there would like to run the PowerPoint for me. That would help me greatly. I'll give you the text of my sermon, and you can click the buttons for me so I don't forget. Maybe one of you would like to do that for me. Then it would at least get done correctly. As I mentioned, the revelation is first and foremost about Jesus Christ. It's not about us. And as we look as a quick overview of the entire revelation, we see Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end mentioned in here. For example, He is the risen, glorified Son of God ministering among the churches. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is the first and the last. He is the Son of Man, the one who was dead but now is alive forevermore. He is the Son of God. He is the one who is holy and true. He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lamb in heaven with authority to open the title deed to the earth. He is the Lamb on the throne. He is the Messiah who will reign forever. It is the word of, he is the Word of God. He is the majestic King of kings and Lord of lords returning in glorious splendor to conquer his foes. He is the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So you see from the very beginning, the very beginning of verse number 1 to chapter 22, we see it's all about Jesus. And if we keep that in our mind, how it relates to Jesus Christ, we'll better understand how it relates to us. Greg, could you give me a little more mic? Just a little more so I don't have to raise my voice so high. The Revelation, thank you, the Revelation is a counterpart to Daniel's Old Testament prophecy, and they fit in many places like hand and glove. Now, what I want you to see before we get going here with the introduction, look at verse number 19. Verse number 19. Verse number 19 really is the key verse to all of the Revelation. Verse number 19. You could say here's a mini outline of what we're going to study. Right here wrapped up in one verse is the outline of the entire book of the Revelation. 
For we see it says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So it's broken down like this. The things that you have seen, chapters 1, verses 1 through 20. The things that are, chapters 2, 1 through chapter 3, 22. And then the things that are to take place, future, chapters 4, 1 to chapter 22, verse 21. Here wrapped up in this one verse, verse number 19, is the entire outline. It is the key to understanding the book of the Revelation. Now, before we launch into the study of the Revelation, we need, to, we need to understand that there are at least four major views how a person interprets the book of the Revelation. And it is helpful for us to understand these major views of interpretation because when you're listening to a Bible teacher on the radio or reading a book about the Revelation, you need to know where is this person coming from? Why is this person looking at this situation, this prophecy like that? And why does another look at it like this? So you need to understand the different views of interpretation that some apply to the book of the Revelation. Let me quickly give them to you. The first major view of interpretation is called the preterist. The preterist view. And that simply is the view that all the events of the Revelation were fulfilled during the days of either Nero or Domitian. The book is concerned only with events of the first century. That's the preterist view. It's already fulfilled prophecy in their mind. The second view, second way of interpretation, is historical. And that comes from a post-millennialism view, which means that Jesus Christ comes back after the thousand years talked about in Revelation chapter 20. He comes in at, end, at, the, at the end of the millennial age, the thousand years. So they view that the Revelation is a panorama of church history from the initiation of the apostolic era to the consummation of the age. That's the historical view of interpretation. The third one is this. The idealist, the idealist view. And they are all millennial. That means they, don't be, they do not believe Jesus Christ is coming back to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords for a thousand years on earth. They do not believe there's a millennial kingdom. There's no literal millennial reign of Christ on earth. The apocalypse is not to be taken as a representation of actual events, whether past or future. The book is only a symbol or metaphor to depict the great struggle between good and evil. That's the idealist view. Of interpretation. The last one is called the futuristic view. Futuristic view. And that is a pre-millennial pre view, which means that that view says that Jesus Christ is coming back in his second coming to reign on earth for a thousand years in the kingdom that he will establish sitting on the throne of his father David. Beginning with chapter 4, the futuristic view is the events described belong to the future age and constitute a marvelous prophecy of God's program for the consummation of the age. Now, I need to say this. Every one of these views has problems inherent in each one of them. They all come with problems as we approach the revelation. The one, in my opinion, that has the least amount of problems and best harmonizes with the entire part of the Bible is the futuristic view. And that's the approach I'm going to take throughout the revelation is that chapters 1 through 3 are historical. They're talking about the churches. And chapters 6 through 22 are still future, and they depict symbolically and literally future people and events. Chapters 4 and 5 are a preface, a preface to chapters 6 through 22. So I will employ the futuristic, futuristic interpreta and interpretive model in this study as we study. So you know where I'm coming from. There's no question up front where I'm at 
as we look at the revelation. Okay, let's launch. You ready? Verse number one and two, we see here in verses one and two, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So as I mentioned earlier, this whole book is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is a a disclosure of Jesus Christ. It is, according to verse number one, the revelation, the unveiling, the disclosure. If you want to know who Jesus in his ascended glory is, come to the book of the Revelation. That's where you'll see him. It is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, as God the Father is the source of all revelation... The Son is the revealed revealed living Word of God. The Father communicates that revelation to the Son. The Son communicates that to an angel, and then to John, and then to all believers, you and I today. You see the progression here. The Father is author of all revelation. He gave it to His Son, and the Son gave it to an angel, who gave it to John, who gives it to us today. In the Gospels, as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the Gospels, They revealed Jesus in his humiliation, that the Son of God, God himself, is born in human flesh. His humiliation, that he was made in the likeness of a servant, made in the likeness of men, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. His humiliation, his rejection. In the Revelation, we see Jesus in his exaltation. The ascended, glorious Jesus Christ. And as we open up this revelation, we will see exactly that. Those servants that he's talking about here are you and I, just everyday Christians. This is not for the spiritual elite. This is for everyday Christians to sink our teeth into and to gain what we can out of this. You notice the phrase here, must soon take place. Now we must put this in perspective. The soon take place is relative to God's perspective and not ours. Well, you coming over, yeah, I'll be over there soon. Well, that's from our perspective. Soon to take place is relative to God's perspective and not ours. We need to keep that in mind. As a matter of fact, John, when he wrote 1 John, he told us that we were in the last hour already. And that's almost 2,000 years ago. We're in the last hour. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We must keep this phrase soon to take place in God's perspective and not ours. John told us almost 2,000 years ago we're living in the last hour. This is a pretty long hour, isn't it? Nearly 2,000 years is the hour that we're living in. Jesus revealed his glory to this angel... Now, we don't know who this angel is. We're not told. It just says he sent his angel. Now, that's not uncommon. Even in the Old Testament, we see angels delivering messages. Even in the New Testament, angel Gabriel delivered the message to Mary. Remember reading that in the New Testament? Even in the Old Testament, we see angels revealing things to men. For example, in Daniel 8.16, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So even in the Old Testament, we see angels revealing things that God had given to men. God uses the mediation of angels at times. Look at verse number 2. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
find it very interesting here that it said that John saw the message of God. Normally, don't we think about hearing the message of God? John said, I saw the message of God. And John bore witness to what he saw in his gospel and in the three letters that he wrote. I saw the message of God. And I love the way that he said it in 1 John chapter 1, talking about how I saw the message of God. Not I heard it, but I saw the message of God. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon or beheld, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. I saw the message of God. I was with the living word of God, Jesus Christ. I saw him. I touched him. I even leaned against his, his chest at the Last Supper. I was right there with him. And indeed our fellowship, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. He saw, literally, the message, the revelation of God. He saw it and he bore witness to that. Now verse number three, you probably noticed on the, uh, on the, sermon, on the, excuse me, the bulletin, it says the Alpha and Omega. Well, I gave that to Johnny and that's absolutely correct. Johnny put it correctly in the bulletin. But as I began studying this and preparing for today, I quickly saw I will never make it to verse 8. So in the, uh, for the benefit of you and your love for me, I stopped at verse 3. So therefore we have the title, The Blessing, instead of the Alpha and Omega. So Johnny was correct. I changed it on her after Thursday. So that's why it's different in the bulletin from your handout. This is where we're coming to right now. The first two verses are the revelation of Jesus Christ, how it came to us. The second, or the, the second part of this is the blessing, what the title of the sermon is called. The blessing is found in verse number three. The blessing. Let me read it to you. Now this verse is unlike any other verse in the New Testament, or for that matter, the entire Bible. There is not another verse like this in all of the Bible. There are verses that are similar to this, close but not one verse at all in the entire Bible that's exactly like this right here. There must be a reason the Holy Spirit gave it that way to us. So unique and so pregnant with meaning. Verse number three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. That's in my translation. Your translation may say read. The idea is to read aloud. Who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now this blessed, this beatitude, remember the, the beatitudes of, of Matthew chapter 5? This beatitude is the first beatitude of seven that we find in the Revelation. There are seven total beatitudes. Blessed is chapter 1, 3, 14, 13, 16, 15, 19, 9, 26, 22, 7, and 22, 14. It's very similar to the one in 22.7. In 22.7 it reads, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's very similar to that, but yet it's different. And really it reminds us also of Luke chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus is speaking. Jesus said, 
Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's very similar to that one, but yet a little bit different. The blessing in Luke is directly connected to hearing the word of God. The blessing in the Revelation right here is directly connected to hearing the words of this prophecy. Now what I want you to notice in verse number 3 is how it shifts from first person to third person plural. From first person singular to third person plural. Notice what it says. Actually, it's third person singular. Blessed is the one singular who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Hey, come to think of it, I just read this. God blessed me today. This is, we think about blessed is the one who reads the words of prophecy. Oh, I was at home reading the book of the Revelation. That's not really what it's talking about. You can make a secondary application to that. But this is talking about reading aloud the words of this prophecy. Oh, thank you, God. And the last part of this, so here's singular. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And here's the plural part. And blessed are those, plural, who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So we see that the blessing comes to the one singular who reads the words of this prophecy aloud. Now in the early church, Bible texts were read aloud in front of the church. We don't have necessarily a Bible reading section, a scripture reading section in this service. In the first service we do. That was a practice of the early church to read the Bible text out loud in front of the congregations because not everyone had the entire New Testament. They had fragments. They had books. They didn't have the complete thing. So they would stand and read a letter to the entire congregation. That was the practice of the, of the first church. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.27. Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He didn't say have all the brothers read this letter. He says, I want you to read it to all of the brothers. Read it out loud to them. And in Colossians 4.16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Let it be read among you. Read it out loud. That was a common practice of the first church, to read the Bible out loud, to read scripture passages out loud, or an entire book out loud. Now the blessing comes to those plural who hear and keep or obey what is written in it. Now I want you to catch this now. This is extremely important. The blessing only comes if you both hear and obey what is written. There is no blessing for those who only hear the word of God. This is extremely important. Far too many times we love to listen to the word of God. We love to listen to Bible preachers on the television, Bible preachers on the radio. We even come to church and sometimes like to listen to Pastor Mark preach Bible words. That's hearing the Bible only. There is no blessing in only hearing the Bible. According to this text, it says, Blessed are those who hear and who obey what is written in it. For the time is near. They go hand in hand. If you hear the word of God and do not obey, there is no blessing in that. You cannot obey unless you hear the word of God. They go hand in hand. We hear the word of God, we obey, and then comes the blessing. Now this principle is clearly taught in other parts of the, of the Bible. Look with me please in Luke chapter 6. Matthew records this as well, but I like Luke renditions, Luke's rendition better. Look at Luke chapter 6, the same principle. Now... 
I want to make it clear, I'm not talking to the adults only in this service. I'm talking to all the children that are here, all the teenagers that are here. You must understand this principle. If you desire to be blessed by God, you must not only hear the word of God, you must place yourself under its hearing, under its teaching, but you must also obey the word of God or the blessings of God will not come to you. It applies to all people who name the name of Christ, whether you're a child, whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult, it makes no difference whatsoever. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is talking about, first of all, the, a tree and its fruit and how we can recognize good fruit and a good tree. And then he starts in verse number 46 of Luke chapter 6. And he's talking about something that we, we need to do, each one of us, how extremely is important that this is in our lives. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and, listen, hears my words and what? Does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, you've listened to the words that Jesus said, but the one who hears and does not do them, he does not act on them, he does not obey them, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Hearing and obeying go hand in hand for the blessing. Look in James chapter 1 with me. James chapter 1. Hebrews, James. James 1. James, probably the first book written in the New Testament, very Jewish in its flavor. He lays out the foundation, the, the, the biblical teaching of faith without works is dead in chapter 2. But to lay that foundation, he wants to tell us something important in verse number 22 of chapter 1 of James. Chapter 2 deals with faith without works is dead, but chapter 1 lays the foundation for that teaching here. Look in verse number 22 and following. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer, a listener of the word, and not a doer, an obeyer of the word, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, he looks, he hears, he perseveres, he acts. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do you see that principle taught again? Hearing the word of God, obeying the word of God, go hand in hand to produce the blessings of God in our lives. You cannot have one without the other. Have you ever asked yourself, God, where's, where's the blessing in my life? Why does my life seem to be one shipwreck after another? Why are you withholding a blessing from me, who am your child? I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Where's my blessing? In light of that, ask yourself this question. Are you obeying what you've already heard? Are you a doer of the word or a hearer only? Is your life being built on a strong foundation of obedience? 
not just hearing, but doing what Jesus said. Now, Benjamin Franklin said, and I question whether I question his spirituality, but he makes a good point here. He says, how many observe Christ's birthday? How few his precepts? Oh, it is easier to keep holidays than commandments. We see at the end of Revelation 1, we're back into the Revelation again. 1-3. We see the phrase, for the time is near. For the time is near. This exact phrase is used again in chapter 22, verse 10. It says, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now this phrase, the time is near, refers to events that will characterize the period immediately preceding the end, but not the end itself. For the time is near for this to begin, is what he's saying. Hasn't begun already, but the time is near for it to begin. So it's the events immediately preceding the end. The end's not here yet, but the time is near. And if you think about that phrase, the time is near. If we were to take that phrase to heart and realize the time of Jesus Christ coming back again. And I don't know when he's going to come. I have no idea. He didn't tell me. I don't know. But if we take the idea that the time is near, that his second coming and the end of all things may be just right around the corner. If we take that into our mind and let it come into our life and seep into our very being, it will give us a great motivation for listening to and obeying the word of God. For none of us want to go into eternity thinking, Ah, oh, I wasn't really obedient to everything I knew to be true. Ah. Oh. Time is near. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, he said, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come. It's near for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's writing to believers in Rome. He said, listen, you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's been several years ago now. And now your salvation, you're going into his presence, into glory is nearer than it's ever been. The time is at hand. Wake up. And I say to the church today, wake up. Our salvation is nearer than when it first came. Arise out of your sleep, O sleeper. And isn't it true? Our lives are just a short vapor. Isn't it true? We've just seen this last week, how short life really is. It's just here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's like the fog that rises in the morning, and as soon as the sun rises and heats the ground, the fog dissipates. That's like our lives. There's such a short span, and life is way too short, and it's over too quickly. That's a reality. The question in us today is, are you ready to stand before God with the confidence that you did everything he asked you to? If God calls you, even teenagers, home today, forbid that it would happen. It may. Children, adults, are you ready to go into his presence with confidence saying, God, I did everything you asked me to do. Oh, do we do missteps? Yes. Do we repent of our missteps? Absolutely. But with the full assurance is, God, I will do everything you asked me to do. That same confidence, that same commitment that Jesus had in the garden. Father, not my will, but your will be done. I can walk into his presence into eternity with that confidence. Father, I did what you asked me to do. Just like Jesus in the ascension. Father, I did exactly what you asked me to do.
Paul, in the last book that he wrote in the New Testament, his last book, in 2 Timothy, he said to Timothy, and this is good encouragement to us today, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. That word means tested to be true, like metal, precious metal is tested to be true. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be what? Ashamed. That when I stand before the presence of a holy God, I do not have to bow my head in shame and say, God, I was disobedient my life. But I can stand up and say, by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, I walked in obedience, Father. I have no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling or dividing or cutting straight the word of truth. Missionary Karen Watson counted the cost of following Jesus. That's why she left a letter with her pastor before going to Iraq. She went to provide humanitarian relief in the name of Jesus. But she was gunned down in the country she came to serve. The letter began. You're only reading this if I died. It included gracious words to family and friends. And this simple summary of following Christ. Karen said, to obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory is my reward. John Samus, you probably don't even recognize the name, but you recognize the song that he wrote. He wrote this song that goes like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows, are for them who will trust and obey. Worship team, would you please come to close us out the rest of the service? As the worship team is coming this morning, I have a couple of questions to ask. First of all, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? Have you believed that he died in your place on the cross and you've repented of your sins and accepted him? If you've not done that, come see me after the service. Right now during this time, if you want to come talk to me about knowing Jesus Christ personally. But secondly, let me ask you, believer in Jesus today, are you both hearing the word and obeying the word? And the blessings upon your life? Or are you in a place where you're simply hearing the word? And obedience is only secondary, if at all, part of your life. Where are you today, teenager? Are you obeying what you already know to be true in the Bible? Young people, are you obeying what God has said to you to do? Adults, what's your level of obedience? For without hearing, we cannot obey but without obeying, we have no blessings. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who do it, obey it, keep the words of this prophecy. For the time is near. Let's pray together. Father, we are created beings that have a free will to choose. We are free moral agents. That's the way you created us.
And even in the redemption we have in Christ, even being born again, even the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us, we at times choose to disobey you. And it is a choice. We know exactly what we're supposed to do, and we choose to disobey your word, and we wonder why the blessing never comes. Father, I've been there. I've done it. I've willfully disobeyed you. I've willfully gone against your word, and I've repented, and, and, and I ask that you forgive me. And I know that you have already. But here this morning, Father, our people, your children, are struggling with this idea of obedience, selective obedience, part-time obedience. What you desire or what brings the blessing is full-time obedience empowered by the Holy Spirit who can work holiness and obedience in us. Father, I pray that this morning the decisions will be made to say, I will not be ashamed when I stand before my Creator and my Savior.